pump basically is a constant, slightly contracted state of all muscle tissue, okay? And so in order to have this slightly contracted state, essentially we're having some sort of action potential, some sort of signal that's telling our muscle tissue that we do need to contract. And that's what we use, a, or that's one of the reasons we use a spinal reflex, okay? And so spinal reflex will actually activate diff, different groups of motor units, and they do this alternately. So it's not all just right at one time. We do it in different phases, different groups, and essentially it kind of helps to keep the muscles from, the muscle cells, really from tiring out, okay? And it does this in response to different stretch receptors. Um, with this, it does not generate enough tension in the muscle uh, for movement. So essentially all we're doing is just kind of slightly contracting the muscle. And essentially the purpose of it really is for the good, okay? One, it keeps muscles good and firm, okay, which is a good thing. Number two, it keeps them healthy, okay? And number three, it really keeps them or makes them ready to respond. So in a slightly contracted state, uh, again, alternately, uh, throughout that, those motor units in the muscle, uh, your muscles essentially are ready to respond to anything that comes towards you or that we require. Okay. Now, with that said, then, <clears throat> all of this stuff that we've talked about, we've talked about muscle contraction, muscle tone. The one thing we haven't really touched on is what actually is a muscle contraction. Okay. And the simple definition of muscle contraction is the generation of force in muscle tissue, okay? Here's the thing, is muscle contraction does not actually have to cause a shortening of the muscle fiber, which in turn does not actually have to cause a shortening of the muscle itself, okay? Shortening of the muscle, or even of the cell, will occur when the tension generated by the cross bridges on the thin filaments exceeds the forces that are opposing the shortening, okay? So what does that mean? It means that if I come up here and try to lift my phone, okay, my phone obviously doesn't weigh very much, so there's not a lot of resistance on the muscle. Okay? If I'm just picking it up, obviously what muscle am I utilizing? This is not tricky. What muscle am I utilizing? Your bicep, right? So if I use my bicep, for it to generate enough force, it just has to overcome the resistance of everything in my arm, gravity, in my phone. And if I do that, it shortens, right? So if I look at the bicep, it will actually start to shorten. You'll see a little bit of a bulge in there. And that's a contraction that involves shortening. Now, these tables uh, are anchored into concrete, okay? So what if I try to lift the table with the same muscle? What happens? It ain't gonna move, okay? Do I have a contraction? Yes or no? No. Why not? Or is that a guess? I guess. <laughs> Anybody agree or disagree? Why don't I have a contraction? What's the definition of a contraction? Am I generating a force by trying to lift this? 
muscles tight, just not shortening. So yes, I still have a contraction. Remember, contraction is the generation of force, has nothing to do with whether the muscle shortens or not. Now, you'll, just for reference sake, I have my fingers on it, but I'm not trying to lift it. Do I have a contraction here? No, I'm not trying to generate any force. There's no pressure or no force put on to the table. So that's kind of the difference between the two, okay? So that leads us then to different types of contractions, okay? So when we look at an isotonic contraction, isotonic contractions are where the muscle tension overcomes the resistance, resulting in some sort of movement, okay? So the tone, what we kind of say stays constant, but the length changes, okay? So there are two real types of contractions here. We have a concentric contraction and an eccentric contraction. With concentric contractions, the muscle shortens as it contracts. With eccentric contractions, the muscle lengthens as it contracts, okay? Now, in most movements, you're gonna have both, okay? just depends on which one is the, the primary, if you will. Concentric contractions typically are what people think of. Those are the ones that you contract, your muscle tightens up, and so it shortens. This is the one where I'm trying to lift my phone, I look at my bicep, and it goes up, right? Okay. At the same time, we also look at an eccentric contractions. Now, eccentric contractions a lot of times will take place during a concentric contraction, uh, but they typically go on the opposite side, okay? Now, they're not necessarily as strong in this case. They'll have a different role, okay? So think about the same thing. Think about a 35-pound dumbbell that I try to lift here, okay? I have a contraction going up, okay? So that's a concentric contraction of my biceps. At the same time, there's also a slight eccentric contraction of my triceps. Okay? Now again, it's not as much, but it helps aid in the, in the control of the contraction. Now, there's a very, when we get into, if you ever get into weightlifting or go into the gym, there's an actual workout or a type of workout that involves eccentric contractions. Anybody know what they're called? They're called negatives. Okay? Well, that's what a lot of people call them. Think of a bench press, okay? You do a bench press, obviously you press the barbell up. What type of contraction is that? Concentric. Other one. Concentric. Concentric, right? We have this concentric contraction basically of our chest, of our triceps. That's the main contraction going on. Now, we have gravity pushing back down. A negative is the reverse. So now we take those exact same muscle groups and we bring the weight down slowly. Which muscles are working? Primarily, in this case. The other side. Which one? The triceps and what's the big lift of a bench press? Chest, your pecs, right? So now those are the concentric going up, those are the concentric muscle groups. When you go down, 
Now those same muscle groups are still working, but they're working in reverse. Now they're tightening as that weight comes down. And so when you bring it down slowly, you have gravity, you have the weight and everything pushing down. And so now these muscles are actually contracting as you move down, essentially prohibiting that weight from coming straight down on you, kind of as a protective mechanism. And the reality is, is you can actually get a better workout sometimes from eccentric contractions than what you can from concentric contractions, okay? So those are isotonic contractions where you have either shortening or lengthening. There is movement. Isometric contractions are the reverse or the opposite of that. With isotonic, there is movement. With isometric, we still have tension, it's still contraction, but it's not enough to overcome the resistance, okay? So what I was doing there up there on the table by trying to lift it with my bicep and trying to curl it, but it wouldn't move, that's an isometric contraction where there's tension generated, but nothing actually occurs, okay? The tension increases to the muscle's capacity, but the muscle neither shortens nor lengthens, okay? So you basically are just holding it there. So these are a couple examples. Uh, you can kind of look at uh, isometric and isotonic contractions. Again, with isometric contractions, you have, in this case, the baby's pulled all the way up to your chest and you're just holding it there. Nothing's changing. Uh, concentric and eccentric contractions are where you're actually bringing the baby up and bringing the baby back down, okay? So just a couple examples there. We also look at the length tension relationship of that contraction, okay? And so the tension a muscle produces depends on its length at the time of stimulation, okay? So we have to look at whether the muscle is completely relaxed, whether it's fully stretched out, whether it's already partially shortened. And so a fiber at resting length generates the maximum contractile force, okay? We have optimal overlap of the thick and the thin filaments, okay? Now, when a fiber is shortened, okay? So if we basically shorten the muscle already, we're already to a certain point, we now actually generate less force from there, okay? So going from here to here, we generate less force, there's less distance to go. We already have partial overlap, and so we don't have the ability to create as much force as what we would if the muscle wasn't at a resting length, okay? And so the filament movement is limited because it's already close to the Z-disc, okay? We also look at a fiber at the extended length. It also generates a weaker force, okay? Uh, in this case, we have minimal thick and thin filament overlap for cross bridge formation, okay? If you think about that, if you think about our sarcomere and the overlap of the myosin and the actin, when we have that uh, sarcomere at a resting length, remember, there's a good chunk of overlap. So we have a lot of myosin heads that combine to the actin molecule and essentially put a lot of force into it. When we have that sarcomere fully extended or the muscle fully extended, now all of a sudden we have less overlap of the actin molecule. And so now we have less space for those myosin heads to grab on, okay? And so a great example of that is if you were to take a uh, dumbbell and just do a bicep curl, where, do you where can you lift the most weight? At what position, okay? 
So if this is resting, your arms typically are slightly bent. You go to right here from this point and you lift the weight. That's where you're going to generate the most force on that dumbbell. From here to here. Okay? From here to here, you don't have much force because there's less movement. You've already almost maxed out your sarcomere as far as how short it can get. But now extend that arm all the way out. And now try to lift it. When that muscle is fully extended, all of a sudden this becomes a little bit more difficult. Because again, you don't have the space for those myosin heads to actually be able to grab on to that active molecule. Okay? And so here again, the force generated is weaker. Again, you get a chance to kind of see that. What happens is we go from slightly contracted uh, to the resting length and then down to a stretched sarcomere. Again, what's the force look like? Again, it kind of follows that table, that chart. We also have to look at muscle fatigue, okay? So muscle fatigue is reduced ability to produce muscle tension, okay? Now, we typically think, when we think of muscle fatigue, um, the normal individual thinks of muscle fatigue as I am tired and I just don't want to do it as opposed to I physiologically can't do it. But there is actually a physiological muscle fatigue, okay? And that typically is because we have a decrease in the glycogen stores during prolonged exercise, so we don't have enough fuel or enough energy, enough sugar in a sense. We also look at what happens at the neuromuscular junction. If we don't have enough calcium that actually is released from the synaptic knob by not having enough calcium, we don't stimulate uh, enough uh, acetylcholine to be released, okay? Uh, we also have a decreased number in synaptic vesicles, which again leads to less uh, acetylcholine being released, okay? And again, by doing that, we don't stimulate the same amount of uh, ligand-gated sodium-potassium channels. We also have the ex uh, excitation-contraction coupling component of it. Uh, if we have altered ion concentrations that, can, that impair the action potential conduction and calcium release from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So again, we're kind of looking at sodium and potassium. If we're not generating that action potential the way that we're supposed to. We also have to look at the cross-bridge cycling component. Okay? Excessive inorganic phosphate slows the release of phosphate from the myosin head. Okay? Again, looking at calcium or concentration levels. And we also have to look at, again, calcium levels at the cross bridge location in the muscle cell. So if we have less calcium available for troponin, that means uh, tropomyosin maintains its blocked state uh, on the myosin binding sites of the actin molecule. Okay? So these are all components of what we would consider physiological muscle fatigue. So what happens with exercise then? Okay. So there's obviously we know there's a couple different types of exercise, uh, different programs and everything, but ultimately we have to look at whether we're looking at anaerobic exercise or aerobic exercise. Aerobic is our endurance exercise. We use oxygen, uh, we're kind of going long term or long time frames uh, it leads to increased muscle capillaries, increased number of mitochondria, and increased myoglobin synthesis. Because again, we need a heavy supply of blood because we need a heavy supply of oxygen. Uh, because we're long distance, we need, or long term, 
uh, endurance type exercise, we need a lot of ATP from the mitochondria. And lastly, we need to be able to synthesize and utilize the oxygen. So again, it results in greater endurance, strength, and resistance to fatigue. We can also see the conversion, which we talked about this uh, last class, about the conversion of muscle fiber types. In this case, we can actually convert fast glycolytic fibers into fast oxidative fibers, which lasts a little bit longer uh, as far as exercise endurance goes. Our other type is typically the anaerobic pathway, or the anaerobic type of exercise. And this is more what we consider resistance exercise. So while this is typically more running, uh, long distance running, uh, what we consider the cardiovascular type of exercise. If, if you say I'm going to the gym and I'm just going to do cardio today, this is typically what we're referring to. If you're going to the gym to lift weights, this is typically what we're referring to. Okay? Results in muscle hypertrophy. Hypertrophy is what? Again. What is muscle hypertrophy? opposed to atrophy. Some takers on what muscle hypertrophy is. Good guess. Did you know it or did you read it? Good call. Muscle hypertrophy is getting larger. Muscle atrophy is getting smaller. So when we go through resistance exercise, we are actually going to try to increase muscle size. All right? So this would be bodybuilders. They are trying to increase muscle size. Um, and this is typically our fast glycolytic fibers. They're going to do that chain or go through that chain. Uh, we also will see an increase in mitochondria because, again, we need more uh, energy or we need more ATP. Uh, we will also see more glycogen stores because, again, we need more, uh, more fuel, more energy. Uh, we'll see an increase in myofilament. Okay? We are increasing the size of the muscle, so we develop more myofilaments in the tissue. And then lastly, we actually see an increase in connective tissue because connective tissue is also a component of the muscle itself that helps develop strength. So particularly, we're looking at a lot of the tendon components of it, that connective tissue that runs through the muscle and forms the tendons on the muscle. Which then, all of that to say, leads us to the overload principle. Uh, it's kind of one of the uh, most well-known principles in uh, anatomy that most people don't realize they know. Okay. The overload principle is forcing a muscle to work hard that promotes an increase in muscle strength and endurance. The muscle adapts to its increased demands, and so in order to produce these demands and produce these gains, muscles must be overloaded. So, all of this slide really can be summed up in one small little phrase. Anybody know what that phrase is? Muscles must be overloaded to produce further gains. We can simplify it in one phrase. No pain, no gain. Okay? Obviously, there's a little 
caveat to that. You don't want to injure yourself. But the truth of the matter is, when you go to web, web, go to a weight room, yeah, you can lift a bunch of reps. But if you get to the end of your set and it doesn't feel like it's uncomfortable or the muscle is burning, you know what you just accomplished? Next to nothing, right? You have to be able to overload the, overload the muscle in some way, shape, or form. Whether it's with extra reps to go longer to add a cardiovascular component to it, or whether you have to add more weight to add a hypertrophy or resistance component to it. Either way, some way the muscle has to be overloaded in order to develop further gain. So any questions on anything skeletal muscle related? If you look at the rest of this, you will notice that, uh, I don't really know how many slides total we have, but we don't really spend a lot of time on smooth muscle uh, and cardiac muscle, because basically, you'll be able to have an entire class on smooth muscle, uh, as far as like, I think that's more A and B2. And then also, there's, you can have an entire class on cardiac muscle and the heart, okay? So, we just kind of touch on some of the basics, particularly uh, the contraction component of it, okay? And then obviously, some of the basics uh, of the muscle itself. So, if we look at smooth muscle, it's going to be found in the walls of most of our hollow organs, with the exception of the heart, because the heart has its own type of muscle. Okay? We usually find it in two layers. We have the longitudinal and the circular layer. Okay? The longitudinal, when it's contracted, causes dilation and shortening. The circular layer, when contracted, causes constriction and elongation. Okay? So we have two completely different layers of muscle. One's kind of an internal layer, one's kind of an out or external layer, right? The two basic layers of smooth muscle. Again, the longitudinal will be more to the outside, causes dilation, so it causes the organ or the tissue to open up, and it also causes it to shorten. So as it opens wide, it opens the lumen, the hole, it'll actually shorten the muscle. The circular layer, which is more the internal layer, does the opposite. It causes constriction, and as it constricts, it causes the organ to elongate, okay, or the tissue to elongate. We only find a small amount of endomesium here, so that's kind of one little difference uh, with this and skeletal muscle. One of the processes that occur with smooth muscle is called peristalsis, right? Okay? And so peristalsis, we typically know it occurs more in the stomach. That's kind of the big area that it occurs in. But peristalsis is alternating contractions and relaxations of smooth muscle layers that help to mix and squeeze substances through the lumen of hollow organs. So again, think of your stomach, think of your small and your large intestine, right? And again, we have the longitudinal and the circular layer. When we have the longitudinal contracting, the organ dilates and shortens. When the circular layer contracts, we have constriction and elongation. So let's look at the microscopic anatomy very briefly of smooth muscle, okay? So the muscle structure is just a little bit different. When we look at the muscle fibers with skeletal muscle, they were kind of these long rod-like rod shaped structures. With smooth muscle, these are more short spindle-like fibers, okay? 
When we look at connective tissue, we have only a small amount of endomesium, okay? Whereas with skeletal muscle, we had all three of them, okay? So all three layers uh, of the tissue, epimesium, paramecium, and endomesium. Uh, the sarcoplasmic reticulum is significantly less developed in smooth muscle than what it is in skeletal muscle. So not nearly as prominent or developed. In smooth muscle, we have pouch-like infoldings called caviole. And these are in the sarcolemma. And they're now the structures that kind of maintain or sequester or contain our calcium ions. In smooth muscle, there's no sarcomere, no myofibrils, or no T-tubules. So a lot less structure that's there. So if we take a look at it, again, these are more spindle-shaped. We kind of see the shape of this one individual cell as opposed to the long, rod-like shape of the skeletal muscle. You can see some of these other properties here that we'll talk about uh, with dense bodies and the caviolae, uh, the nucleus of the cell, okay? You still have the sarcolemma along the outside of the cell. So a lot of this stuff is still there, maybe just not to the same extent that what we had before. Uh, in order to look at the innervation of smooth muscle as far as the nerves going to it, we now have what we call varicosities. And these varicosities are little swellings of our nerve fibers, okay? And these swellings actually contain neurotransmitters. You'll notice that so far we don't really have a specific neurotransmitter like we do in skeletal muscle. With skeletal muscle, we have acetylcholine. Here, we can have multiple neurotransmitters. And those neurotransmitters are basically gonna have different effects on different areas, okay? Our autonomic nerve fibers are gonna innervate the smooth muscle at diffuse junctions, which are wide synaptic clefts in the general area of the smooth muscle cell, okay? So not necessarily the same type of neuromuscular junction that we had before. We still do have myofilaments, but they're in kind of a different ratio. The ratio of thick to thin filaments at one to 13 is much lower than what it is in skeletal muscle, which is about one to two, okay? So significantly different. Uh, with skeletal muscle, uh, we had myosin heads uh, absent, basically kind of in that H zone region. In this case with smooth muscle, the thick filaments have heads excuse me, along their entire length. So there is no kind of bare zone for myosin heads. We also do not have a troponin complex, uh, but we do have what we call a protein called calmodulin. And that protein is actually going to act as the calcium binding site. So instead of calcium binding to troponin like it does in skeletal muscle, now the calcium is gonna to bind to calmodulin, okay? The myofilaments are spirally arranged. So instead of causing this kind of straight line contraction like we have in skeletal muscle, we now get more of a corkscrew shape. So now we're actually gonna see this kind of shifting and twisting of the muscle. Again, we have dense bodies that we kind of touched on, or at least on the graphic anyway. These are proteins that serve as attachment sites for the non-contractile intermediate filaments. They also act as anchoring points for thin filaments to the sarcolemma at regular intervals, okay? <clears throat> so if we take a look at where we find 
smooth muscle as we can before we get into the contraction. We're going to see that they are found in a variety of different organs. Okay. Uh, but again, one of the big things to think about is when we think about smooth muscle, think about hollow organs. Okay? Again, we have a circular layer and a longitudinal layer. Those are the types of things that we're, or that's where we're basically going to find a lot of these uh, types of organs is in the hollow component. So in blood vessels, they have, again, a lumen. A lumen is a hole or a passageway. So we're going to see in the blood vessels that help regulate blood flow and blood pressure. The bronchioles, which basically are where we get air into, uh, our lungs help control airflow into the alveoli. In the digestive tract, in the intestines, again, we go through peristalsis, mixes and propels our materials. In ureters of the urinary system, basically propelling urine from the kidneys to the bladder. And then in the uterus of our female reproductive system. Okay? So again, all of these. Blood vessels, all organs. Bronchioles, bronchioles, hollow organs. Intestines, hollow organs. Ureters, hollow organs. Uterus, hollow organs. You'll notice there's kind of a trend there. So if we go through muscle contraction, I think this is what, just one slide? Uh, this is the process. We'll go through it, and then I'll come back to the slide. I think I may have even put it on here uh, a second time. I don't know if I... Uh, I think I might have added it and blown it up, made it bigger, take up the whole screen. But we can kind of follow along with the process here. Uh, we'll see the steps and then we'll take a look at the image again. So the first thing is that we still have calcium that floods into the system. Okay? And so again, instead of binding to troponin, calcium is now going to bind to calmodulin. Okay? This calmodulin activates a myosin-like chain kinase. Okay, so we're basically activating an enzyme by doing this. Uh, this activated kinase enzyme phosphorylates and activates our myosin molecule. And because of that then, the cross bridges interact with actin. And so essentially we form the same type of cross bridge that we had with uh, our skeletal muscle. In order to do the, the, the reverse and go through relaxation, you basically see the reverse of these steps. Calcium detaches from calmodulin, calcium is removed from the sarcoplasm, and we have dephosphorylation of myosin by the myosin light chain uh, phosphatase. Okay? So if we take a step back and look at this, better at least hopefully looks bigger all right so those steps that we just kind of hit 
before. Again, calcium basically floods into the cell. Again, that's not any different. It's the final trigger uh, for muscle contraction. Uh, it binds to calmodulin, which again is a protein. And so when proteins become activated, what do they do? They change shape. And so calmodulin goes through its shape change. Here we have an inactivated myosin light chain kinase enzyme. Again, here we have an activated one. And again, you see what? A shape change, okay? It's that uh, myosin light chain kinase enzyme that basically comes in and phosphorylates our myosin, or excuse me, our myosin molecule. And so you'll see here, ATP comes in, uh, converted ADP into, or converts ATP into ADP and inorganic phosphate. Again, so it phosphorylates that myosin molecule, which now again then forms the cross bridge, which we don't really see here. Uh, we have to kind of come down into here, uh, which it's still even hard to see um, because they don't show it very well. Uh, they show more of the cells. But again, we end up seeing this corkscrew type of contraction as opposed to what we see with our skeletal muscle and the long rod-like contractions, okay? And so we have the cross bridge formation, the power stroke, and the reattachment. So we still go through the same cross bridge cycle that we did before, but a lot less steps in the process. And we don't have the calcium, the voltage-gated calcium channels necessarily in and around this area. Again, we still have them kind of out here, but they're not in T tubules, okay? And so calcium still floods in, that's still kind of the final trick, okay, to stimulate the action, or to stimulate the muscle contraction. Whoop. If we look at some of the characteristics then of smooth muscle contractions, with skeletal muscle, skeletal muscle contraction can be very quick, right? Think about how fast you can contract a muscle. It's fractions of a second, correct? With smooth muscle, it's very slow, and we have very synchronized contractions. We will often see a lot of cells electrically coupled by gap junctions. Do we remember what the purpose of a gap junction was for? What did a gap junction allow to occur? Maybe a better question is first, what is a gap junction. This isn't just an opening. Um it's not just an opening, it involves an opening. What is that opening for though? That's kind of the, that's what makes it a gap junction. Gap junctions, what is a gap junction?
Um, yeah, I mean, that's part of it. What's the purpose of having one? To allow And what does that stuff allowing it to go in between allow multiple cells to do? So a clue is that we find a lot of gap junctions in the heart, in cardiac muscle. So what is one of the major functions uh, or hallmarks of having gap junctions present? What does it allow? big muscle cell? No. Is it a bunch of muscle cells? Yes. How do they contract? As a group or individually? I hope they contract as a group. With that said, what do gap junctions then allow? They allow contraction of a bunch of tissue as a group. And so if we look at that in, or in, uh, excuse me, in cardiac muscle, we have the same type of thing in smooth muscle. It allows muscle tissue to contract as a group or as a layer, okay? So we get big contractions of the entire tissue, okay? Now, within some of this tissue, some of it is self-excitable, okay? Which, just like in the heart, you have to sit there and tell your heart to beat every time. No. How does the heart know to beat? Because it's got a pacemaker that tells itself to beat, okay? And so we have self-excitatory muscles in smooth muscle as well, which means they depolarize without any external stimuli. And so they act as pacemakers or sheets of muscle. And the rate and the intensity of the contraction can be modified by neural and chemical stimuli. A lot of times by neurotransmitters in particular. Uh, also by hormones can make a difference. Okay? And so we can either get light contractions or very full contractions. So just a couple caveats. Smooth muscle contractions, similar to skeletal muscle in that it uses, utilizes the sliding filament uh, mechanisms. It uses myosin and actin. The final trigger Right, is an increase in intracellular calcium levels. And the sliding process is energized by ATP. Okay, so those are still three similarities. Calcium is obtained from the sarcoplasmic reticulum via membrane channels, but it's also uh, obtained from the extracellular space in smooth muscle. So that's kind of a little bit of a difference between smooth muscle and skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle, it's all from the sarcoplasmic reticulum, Smooth muscle, we get it from an additional location. Okay? So if we look at a couple of the functional cat categories of smooth muscle then, we have multi-unit and single unit. Okay? And so when we look at multi-unit smooth muscle, we're going to find these a lot of times in our airways, arteries, 
erector pili muscles, and the iris of the eye. In these, gap junctions are rare. It's not necessarily as important that everything contracts all together. But we still have things arranged in motor units. And so because we have motor units, we're actually going to have graded contractions that occur in response to neural stimuli. If you think about the, specifically in the erector pili muscles, you know, those are the muscles obviously that we know help make our hair stand on end. There are times where your hair may just kind of start to go up a little bit, and then there are times where it feels like it's completely up on end, right? And that's kind of the graded response or the graded contraction based on some sort of neural response. Right? Our single unit or visceral smooth muscle is the most common type. It's stimulated to contract in unison as the cells are linked by gap junctions. So these are the more common type that we see more in the viscera of the body. It's all, it often exhibits spontaneous action potentials. Locations include the walls of the digestive, urinary, reproductive tracts, portions of the respiratory tract, and most of our blood vessels. Okay? So that's the single unit type of smooth muscle. So if we look at some of the functional categories and we look at neural regulation, we have this neurotransmitter that's going to bind. Okay? And so this can actually give us um, either a graded potential or a local, or I should say, a local graded potential or an action potential, okay? The neurotransmitter typically is going to increase calcium into the sarcoplasm. Again, that's where we get those two potentials. Graded potentials are local, they're small. Action potentials are kind of the all or none. It's the main uh, way that we communicate with the rest of our body, okay? And all, neuroregulation also uh, depends on the neurotransmitter being released and the type of receptor molecules that we have. Okay? So, with acetylcholine, we can get a strong bronchial contraction, which gives us constriction. Okay? We also have norepinephrine. That's going to give us a different response. Okay? This is inhibitory in bronchial, and this gives us dilation. However, this is inhibitory, di uh, dilatory uh, in bronchioles, but when we look at norepinephrine in our blood vessel walls, it actually gives us a strong contraction, okay? And so we get different responses based on the, one, the neurotransmitter, and two, based on the actual receptors that are present. Here just kind of shows the multi-unit uh, and single-unit smooth muscle. Multi-unit, single unit. You can kind of see what happens with the uh, nerve or the neuron going through. Same thing here, how it innervates uh, multiple cells that, that way versus this way. Okay? Just a couple different ways to kind of do that. So again, nice short and sweet with smooth muscle. So any questions on smooth muscle contraction? Our last one is cardiac muscle, okay? And cardiac muscle has some similarities to skeletal muscle. One, it's gonna have striations, which means it has the A band and the I band, whereas smooth muscle does not have striations. It's unstriated, okay? Uh, we have short branching fibers as opposed to the long rod-like that we have with skeletal muscle and the spindle-like that we have with smooth muscle. Uh, it's got one or two nuclei. Again, we said it's striated, which means it has sarcomeres. We again have many mitochondria. Obviously, as many times as it contracts and beats throughout the day, we need a lot of energy for it. 
and we also need a lot of oxygen for the heart. Uh, no oxygen, no blood supply means cardiac death. Okay? We have intercalated discs which join the ends of our neighboring fibers, uh, and the discs contain desmosomes and gap junctions, which again, we have desmosomes which allow what? Think about what we said desmosomes were. Desmosomes allow for what? There are spot welds, but where we find them and what their function is is a little different. What, do, what is a characteristic of desmosomes? skin tissue. Skin allows what? A little bit of flexibility, a little bit of movement. Heart's the same way. Many times it beats and how it does it in kind of this rhythmic way, we need to have a little bit of flexibility with it. Okay? We also have gap junctions which allow the entire thing to contract in one beat basically. Okay? All in a short amount of time. So we have desmosomes for movement, gap junctions, to allow for an entire muscle to contract at one time, or relatively at one time. Contractions are started by the Hot's autorhythmic pacemaker cells. So we have our own little center that basically starts the process of contraction, and the heart rate and contraction force are influenced by the autonomic nervous system. So does that mean, so do you have control over it? Say again? No. Okay. Voluntary, we have control. Autonomic or involuntary, we do not. Here's a look at a cardiac muscle. Again, you can see all the structures. Again, still rod-like, but branched. Okay, So a little bit different as far as the structure of the tissue. Any questions over chapter 10? That is the end of our muscular systems, or all of our muscular systems. Um, I did put chapter 12 up, however, uh, whether you printed them or not, I have no idea. Uh, I'm going to actually try to go back through again tonight. I may end up trying to edit them a little bit, so I would probably wait until uh, Wednesday if you're going to print them uh, or download them, because I very well may re-upload uh, some things if I actually get around to changing some of the stuff. We're just gonna start just a couple, couple slides on this. We won't go very far in just a couple minutes. So we skip chapter 11 and we go right into chapter 12, basically. Um, Chapter 12, we basically are now starting the nervous system, okay? And so for the rest of the term, basically is nervous system. We'll start with some of the basics, the functions, how it operates, and then we'll start to transition into some of the more basic uh, anatomy components. Uh, the brain, the spinal cord, uh, the PNS, the nerves of the body, 
Uh, we'll make that little transition uh, as we go through the next few chapters. But chapter 12 basically starts the uh, functional component and the divisions of the nervous system. So one of the first things we have to look at is what is the nervous system and what are the functions? Well, it's basically the way our body communicates and controls everything within our body. Okay? We have a couple functions. One, we have to collect information. Okay? So it takes in information. The receptors in our body, whether they're thermal receptors, touch receptors, vibratory receptors, uh, visual receptors, whatever, they basically detect stimuli and send those signals to the spinal cord into the brain. Okay? So as we send information there, now we have to process and evaluate the information. Okay? And so at this point now, the brain and the spinal cord determine the response for some sort of sensory input. Okay? So we've taken in the information, we've processed it, now we need to have some sort of signal that gets sent out. And so the brain and spinal cord sends motor output via nerves to our effectors, which are actually going to create or generate some sort of change. Okay? So when we look at information coming in, what pathway was that? We had two terms that we described, information going in and information going out. Collecting information was what pathway? So which one? The other one. The afferent. So information going in is the afferent pathway. Okay? We process it, and then we have information going out, and that is called the efferent. Okay? Efferent pathway goes to our effectors. Okay? We also have a couple different, we I used to have, or in the last book, we used to have kind of a flow chart, and I really like that. Uh, they didn't really give us that graphic for this book, uh, so we'll kind of have to visualize it on our own. But when we look at the organization of the nervous system, there are two major divisions. We have the central nervous system, the CNS, which is basically our brain and spinal cord. We also have our peripheral nervous system, and that's going to involve basically our nerves uh, and our cranium. Basically our cranial nerves, uh, our peripheral nerves, uh, and then ganglia, okay? And we'll talk about ganglia here in just a little bit. Um, let's go ahead, we'll stop right here. I like to, this will be a really good spot to pick up as we start to divide uh, our systems down a little bit. Anybody have any questions? Um, again, our exam will be next uh, Tuesday. That'll be exam, what is that, exam three? Name the channel that we find at the axon terminal. from the actin.
number three, give me the channel that causes depolarization or causes the depolarization phase on the sarcolemma. Give me the channel that causes the depolarization phase on the sarcolemma. Number four, what's the channel responsible for the end plate potential? Acetylcholine is removed from the synaptic cleft. Perfect. Go ahead and pass them in or pass them to the aisles. You guys want the answers or don't care? Channel in the axon terminal is? T-tubes. What's the channel in the axon terminal? Where's Shannon? What'd you put? Sounds like a great answer to me. Voltage-gate calcium channels. What causes the release of myosin from the actin? ATP. ATP. What's the channel that causes the depolarization phase on the sarcolemma? for the end plate potential. We're going to go find somebody else too here. Uh-oh. 
Where's destiny? What'd you put? You're close. What's the rest of it? The ligand gated channel. Ligand gated sodium potassium channel. And one way acetylcholine is removed from the synaptic cleft. Absorbed back in the cell. What's that? Absorbed back in. Yep, reuptake is one. What's that? Acetylcholine esterase. And the last one? Diffusion. Diffusion. All right. You'll see those scores. Well, you won't see them. They'll just be added right into your exam score. Make sure you sign the sign-in sheet if you didn't.